Turn in your Bibles tonight to Deuteronomy chapter number 2. Deuteronomy chapter number 2. What a blessing it is to be back with you tonight in the house of the Lord. Aren't you glad the Lord gives us so many opportunities to get to meet together? I'll tell you this, man. I couldn't get by with one service a week. Uh, I'd I'd be weighed down and bogged down, discouraged, frustrated, ready to quit. Uh, I'm glad the Lord gives us uh, often fellowship. I trust that God has stirred your heart. Uh, That's why you're here tonight, and I trust that God will do a work this evening. Deuteronomy chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 7. The Word of God says, Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward, and command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coasts of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir. They shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money, that ye may eat, And ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hands. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this uh, service, this evening, this opportunity to gather here. And I pray that you take the word of God. This is a message you've laid on my heart. Uh, Help me, Lord, hide me behind the shadow of your cross. Help me to not say anything that would not magnify the Lord Jesus, but give me boldness to say everything that would please you. Lord, I just pray that the things I say tonight would be exactly what you would desire and what you would have me to say. And I pray that we'd receive the Word of God, Lord, in sincerity, in in honesty, in meekness. Lord, help none of of us to be so uh, haughty and so puffed up as to believe that we don't need to hear from you, that your word has no message for us tonight. Help us instead, Lord, to have our hearts trained upon it. I pray, Lord, that you would have your will and way in us. Father, we love you tonight, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we read in the book of Deuteronomy, we find ourselves really needing a little bit of context to understand what's transpiring in our passage. The book of Deuteronomy is the retelling or remembrance of the law that was given. That's literally what the name Deuteronomy means, to read it over again, to recount again the law. As the children of Israel were standing on the precipice of entering the promised land, and Moses, of course, had already been told that he would not partake in that journey and in that experience, God has uh, has tasked him with the responsibility to take the law that has been given and to read it over again to the children of Israel. In the reading again of this law, he is also tasked with retelling their history, reminding them of all that God has done for them as a people. And you imagine what it must have been like to sit and to listen to that story as it's being told. You know, testimonies are a powerful thing. Uh, When we sit and just talk about the goodness of God, you know what it does? It stirs other people, but it also stirs our hearts too. If you're anything like I am, sometimes I forget everything that God's done for me. Uh, sometimes I just forget how good He's been to me. And sometimes it's good for me, and I believe it's good for you to just sit and dwell and think on and marinate in the testimony of the goodness of God in our life. 
it'd probably do much more to make us a people of precepts if we were also a people of praise. We'd be a lot more a people of the book if we were a people of praise. If we were spending time remembering what God's done in our life, it would spur in us and drive in us a desire to live in obedience to the Word of God. By the same token, man, listen, in churches where praise dies, it's not long and the people die. Uh, in a place where folks ain't bragging on the Lord, it's not long and it turns into a dead, dry church where God don't want to show up. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, because the book of uh, Psalms tells us that He inhabits the praise of His people. Uh, God don't want to go to a dead church any more than you want to. And so He shows up in places where folks are bragging on the Lord, testifying of Him. So it's no surprise that one of Moses' responsibilities was to read again their history and remind them of all that God had done. As he told them about it, he would have probably hit some of the high points. He would have reminded them that they are a purchased people. He would have brought them back to that night in the darkness of Egypt when the death angel passed through, and he would have reminded them how uh, that the uh, blood of the Lamb, the life of the Lamb, had to have been sacrificed so that their firstborn child could go free. They would have remembered how they had taken that lamb and set it apart, literally dwelt with that lamb as a part of their family and their household for a number of days. They would have remembered how that they had taken that tender, precious lamb and opened its throat and spilled its blood. They would have remembered how they had taken and painted the blood upon the lintels of the doorposts. And they would have remembered the horrifying wails all throughout Egypt that night and they realized that the death angel had come through and slain every Egyptian firstborn, they would have hugged their kids a little tighter that night when they were reminded of how God had preserved them. And they would have been reminded they were a purchased people. They belonged to God because the blood of the Lamb had been applied to their souls and their lives. You know, can I say this? The first thing we ought to be reminded of is that we are a purchased people. He paid a price. The, uh, the Paul uh, writing to the church at Corinth said, What know ye not? That your body is not your own. Ye are bought with a price. I know there's a lot of folks have the idea in modern day society, Well, I'm my own. My life is my own. Child of God has no right to ever say that. For a child of God to say my life is my own is to speak as sure a blasphemy as if he were to curse God's name. You're not your own. You don't belong to you. And it's bad when we say it with our lips, but it's even worse when we say it with our life by living our life unheeded to the will of God. They would have been reminded that they are a purchased people. They would have been reminded that they are a pardoned people. About how as they came out of Egypt, though they deserved to die just like the Egyptians did, God didn't kill the Egyptians for being Egyptians. He didn't spare the Jews for being Jews. He spared those that had the blood on the doorpost. And they had been pardoned only and solely because the blood of the Passover lamb had been put on their doorpost. And they would have been reminded how that lamb took upon himself or itself the sins that really belonged unto them and how that God had pardoned them from those things because of that shed blood. We need to be reminded, hey, listen, we need to be reminded of how good he has been. We also sometimes need to be reminded of how bad we were, of just what all God's forgive us of. I promise you this, God's forgiven you of things that you wouldn't forgive nobody else for. He's forgive you for doing Him ways that you wouldn't forgive nobody else if they done you that way. We need to be reminded, man, we are a pardoned people. Whenever they left out of Egypt and made their way to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, to the place where the law was given, Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives the very words of God. 
The Bible says when he came back down, that when he went amongst the children of Israel, that his face literally glowed because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. And that glow did not go away. In fact, the rest of his days, Moses had to go with a veil on his face because men couldn't look on his face because of the glow and the glare that was coming off of it. In other words, he was the only person who could glare at somebody without being mad at him. Amen? That's good. Somebody write the funny papers and send them that. That was good. Make sure my name's on it so I get to check. They uh, He uh, walked amongst and in front of the children of Israel leading them through. And you imagine what a strange spectacle this must have been. I often have thought, bemused about what this scene looked like. Here is this ragtag group of people, transient people, this, this traveling nation, some probably over two million strong, winding their way through the wilderness of Sinai. And at, at the front of them, they've got a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, depending on what day it is. They are literally carrying in tow a massive mobile tabernacle church. They've got all of it packed up. They've got all of it that they're carrying with them as they go. And they are led behind that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud. They are led by this mysterious man, this exiled uh, heir of the Egyptian throne that has thrown it all away to go and serve the God of Israel who's leading this army of people with a veil over his face. I don't know about you, but if uh, if that crowd showed up in town, I'd keep my eye on them. They were a peculiar people. They were different from the world around them. And that was not a bug. It was a feature of God's plan. Can I tell you something? God don't just happen to save weirdos. I know a lot of us are saved weirdos. Somebody say amen to that. But God don't just save weirdos. He saves normies too. Here's the difference. When God saves a man, He makes him peculiar relative to the world that he lives in. We are to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, that does not mean that we are to be an oddity for oddity's sake, but it is to say that when God saves a man, He makes that man a different type of person than he was and than the world that he's living in. And they had to be reminded, man, you're not like you used to be, and you're not like everyone else is. You have met the God of the universe, and you are a changed person because of that. They were a peculiar people. But then they were a promised people. They had left Egypt under the promise of God. Now, sadly, the children of Israel failed that promise. That promise never failed them. But they failed that promise. They come to Kadesh Barnea and they are unwilling to go on in faith immediately into the promised land. And instead they balk at it and a whole generation of them has to die in the wilderness. But they continued, even for those 40 years. I've often thought, I wonder what people talked about. It's funny if you think about how people talk in our society. I remember when I was growing up uh, and, and I was in school and, and I always lived from one school break to the next. <laughs> I mean, when it don't laugh at me, I did all right. I would, I would, whenever school would start, all I could think about was fall break. Immediately, school would start. I'd start counting down the days. It's thirty-five. It's eighty-five. Whatever. I'm counting down the days. Fall break would come and go. And back then, we had Thanksgiving. I, I don't know. I don't know if they still have have Thanksgiving anymore. But but we did. We had Thanksgiving break. And so when I got back from fall break, I was counting down to Thanksgiving break. And then you'd come back from Thanksgiving break for like two days and then have Christmas break. That never, never made no sense to me. 
Uh, why didn't they just let us have our holiday? Amen. And so we'd, we'd have Christmas break and then, and then we'd be, we weren't even thinking about a calendar for the next like 20 days. But then at the end of it was, we're being honest, we're starting to count down our days till we was coming back because we was as tired of sitting home with our parents as they was of sitting home with us. So we was ready to go back. And then we'd come back and there'd be this long stretch. We are currently in it right now from the New Year's all the way to spring break where didn't nothing happen. Government started making up holidays of, of president's birthdays just to give us an excuse to have a day off. And so, I, I, but I would wait. I would go from break to break to break. And when, when I, and that's all I think about. That's all I want to do. I just go from break to break to break. You think about us as a people, and we still do this today, right? But we say things like this to ourselves. Well, I, you know, I can't wait, wait till everything changes at the next election because then it's all going to be fixed and going to be better. Or, or, you know, we, we say things like this. Well, I can't wait till I can get a better job because then everything's going to be easy. Or we say things like, well, I can't wait till I get my kids raised and I won't have to worry about them no more. I wonder what it was they was all talking about. I'll tell you what they was talking about. They was all sitting around saying, boy, I can't wait till we get to Canaan. Everything's going to be better then. They lived under the, under the shadow of that promise for all their days. You know, it reminds me sort of the life of the believer as well. We likewise live under the shadow of a promise, but it's not us going to Him, it's Him returning to us. And we as believers ought to be living our daily lives under the light and the shadow of that promise of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be the thing we're talking about where we're not saying, well, next election comes around, we're going to whoop them all, it's all going to be fixed. We should be saying one of these days Jesus is coming back and He's going to set every bit of it right. Uh, we ought to be not saying, well, one of these days I'll be happy when I get a different house or a better job or this and that. No, instead we ought to be saying, hey, I'm going to live this life and serve Him as much and a, a, as deep as I possibly can because there's coming a day when the Lord's coming back and when He comes back, then I am worry about peace and contentment because He'll give it to me. But right now, I'm going to focus my life serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a promised people. We likewise are a promised people. I want you to notice something that's said down in verse number 4. Now, they have left uh, the, uh, the uh, Mount Sinai. They have wandered through the wilderness and they have made their way back around to a place by the name of Mount Seir. Now, Mount Seir is the inheritance of the Edomites. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And as they are approaching this mountain, when they get there, they have mixed feelings. They don't know what to do. They don't know if they can just march right through the heart and center of Seir and if they'll receive a warm welcome. They don't know. They don't know if they should avoid it. They don't know if they should go around it. They don't know if they should conquer it. They don't know if they should go through it. They're just sort of stuck. God's told them that they can conquer the Canaanites when they get there. But what about the Edomites? What are they supposed to do? So here's what they do. Here's what a lot of us do when we come into a problem. They just started marching around it. And they spent weeks just marching around, debating, disputing, deciding about what they were going to do about this place, Mount Seir. The Bible says, we'll look back at verse 2. The Bible says, the Lord spake unto me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. And command thou the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. I want you to notice this phrase. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, 
For I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for possession. I want you in your heart and mind to underscore that phrase, take ye good heed. You see, when you come to the book of Deuteronomy, you find Moses telling this story of their national history. But you'll also find that on ten separate occasions in the book of Deuteronomy, the phrase, take heed, is used. It's a reminder that as he is rehearsing their history, there's some things they ought to learn from their history, and there's some things that we ought to learn from our history as well. We could say it this way, as he's reminding them of their history, he reminds them they are a purchased people, a pardoned, a peculiar, a promised people. But now here they are commanded to be a prudent people. There are some things, we ought not live in fear of anything, but there are some things we should be cautious of. And on ten separate occasions, the Lord points out things that for the believer, we need to be careful concerning. One of the most foolish things you and I can do is live as though there are no perils or dangers in life. We can live that way, but if we do, we do so at our own peril. Here we find him, the very first of these take heed moments, invoking the children of Israel regarding how they are to deal with the Edomites. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, this is not a series, but I might preach a bunch of them. We'll see how the Lord does it. But I want you to consider this first thought tonight. Uh, Consider with me first off what take heed means before we get into the message. Number one, it means to give attendance to a matter. If you're telling someone to take heed regarding something, what you're telling them to do is don't neglect it, pay attention to it, and see to it. If you were to tell a person take heed, uh, that, you know, you make sure that your, uh, you know, uh, oil gets changed in your vehicle. Take heed that you don't leave the toaster on and burn down the house. Uh, so, uh, some of y'all out there, that low oil light on your car, that's a take heed light, all right? That don't mean, well, you know, I know what you do whenever you come to a yellow light at a stoplight, you just put the hammer down and go faster. When you see the yellow light on the dash, don't go faster, all right? Uh, take heed means stop and give attention to this matter, whatever it is. Number two, take heed means to give reverence to a matter. If you were telling someone to be cautious, to take heed about something, you're saying, hey, you better take it seriously because it's an important matter. Then I would say number three, the word take heed or the phrase take heed means to give diligence to a matter. So it means not merely attend to it, But attend well to it. You find it sort of in our text here when it doesn't just say take heed. It says take ye good heed. Really pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. What could be so important? What area of life could be so imperative that God would give this invocation? Well, I want you to notice and think with me about who the individuals are that Israel is about to interact with. When you think about the life of Esau, the brother of Jacob, you'll find that he was not necessarily a deeply immoral man. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, we'll read it in a moment, where it sort of speaks of Esau and the idea of fornication in the same breath, although I think if we read it correctly, it's not saying that Esau was a fornicator, but it's saying a man that is a fornicator or a man that is in this way like Esau. But Esau is not really a godless man or or an immoral man when you read his story. 
Whenever you read the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. Uh, and uh, then later on, Jacob stole from him the blessing that was supposed to belong to him. And there was great rage and anger and malice and spite and bitterness in Esau's heart. As a result of this, he had of his own free will sold his birthright, but he felt like he had been deceived and swindled out of his blessing. And for many years, Jacob lives in mortal terror of running into Esau because he's afraid that if he meets Esau, Esau is going to kill him. In fact, uh, fairness to Jacob, uh, whenever uh, Isaac was still alive, uh, Esau had sworn that after Isaac was dead, he would kill Jacob. After Isaac dies, uh, Jacob lives in absolute terror of this moment. You remember the book of Genesis, whenever he realizes that his uh, path is about to cross with that of Esau's, Jacob is so scared that he splits his family in two, sends them in two different directions to ensure that they cannot be obliterated by Esau and his men. And Jacob spends that night wrestling with God at the brook Penuel, trying to get help and peace and and wisdom from the Lord. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. But did you know when you read a little further on in that story, when he goes down the road and meets with Esau, rather than Esau meeting him in a blood rage, Instead, Esau runs up and hugs his neck, forgives him, kisses his neck, rejoices that they're together, gives great gifts to Jacob. I'd say this, that don't sound like a bad guy. doesn't sound like a mean-spirited person. We have no record of the Edomites being pagan in their worship particularly or or vile in their behavior and, and conduct. And yet God goes out of His way to tell them here, You better be careful not to meddle with people like the Edomites. How do we account for this? Well, let's read that passage in Hebrews 12. might explain it a little bit. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. By the way, let me just say, it doesn't say lest the grace of God fail any man. It says any man fail of the grace of God. Grace of God don't fail anybody. There's a lot of times I don't live up to what I should be living up to in light of the goodness of God's grace. This isn't talking about losing your salvation. The grace of God never fails you. It's every man failing of the grace of God. He says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator. This is the portion I was talking about. Or profane person. It doesn't say fornicator and profane person. So I don't, I don't think it's calling Esau a fornicator here. But it's saying you need to be careful because people that are immoral or, and then he uses the term profane, people that are amoral. Profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Can I give you a word that might sum up the life of Esau? He is not a sinful man necessarily. He is not even a spiteful man necessarily. But Esau was a secular man. The Bible uses the term here profane. Now when you we use the word profane, we mean filthy. That's generally what we mean. If you were to call someone profane, you'd be saying, why you're filthy, you're vile, you're wicked. We even talk about, uh, you know, barnyard language or or, or, uh, sometimes people even lump in the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain. And we use the word profanity, the idea of using crass and crude language. But you know that the word profane does not mean necessarily vile or unclean or wicked. Here's simply what profane means. It means secular. 
It is the antonym of the word hallowed or sacred. In other words, everything in this world is one of two things. It's either sacred or it is profane. You say, well, give me an example, preacher. Well, listen, this book right here is sacred. Louis L'Amour is profane. That don't mean he's wrong. Somebody say amen to that. But it, it, it's, it's profane, right? It's not a hallowed, sacred book. It's just normal. It's just neutral. It's just of non-significance, spiritually speaking. This is a hallowed book. This is a sacred book. Other books are not like that. They're normal books. They're human books. They're merely profane in nature. And the Bible calls Esau a profane man. In other words, he was a man that, though not sinful, he was secular-minded. This, of course, is in perfect correlation with what we know about Esau. Mainly, the main story we know about Esau is here's a man who's been out hunting. He comes in. He's hungry. He's starving. And Esau uh, offers to fix him a bowl of soup in exchange for his birthright. Now, the birthright was a monumental uh, thing in a person's life, in the firstborn's life. It involved prosperity. It involved position. It involved progenitorship. I mean, the birthright was a significant thing. But the most valuable thing about the birthright was that progenitorship being a part of the lineage of the Messiah for those that were descendants of Abraham. And that would mean a lot to somebody that was spiritually minded. But it didn't mean nothing to Esau. He's hungry. He wants to fill his belly. And so he sells it because he thinks to himself, and he even says this, what good is my birthright going to do me if I die? Because to him all a birthright was, was more money. That's how he viewed the world. That was what he thought of things. It's not that he hated God. It's just he didn't really consider Him that much. It's not that he had spite towards the Lord. He just had a secular mind. He just didn't care for the things of God. And so he is a man that is not mean or malicious or spiteful, but he's just secular in his worldview. He's the kind of person today that would probably be a fairly nice person regarding societal's standards of, uh, society standards of niceness, but he'd now have no interest in church. He'd now have no interest in the things of God. He wouldn't hate this book, but he wouldn't heed this book. He'd be what a lot of us would call good old boys. Somebody's just a nice guy. But and we meet them, we talk about them sometimes. We say, "Well, they're a pretty good old fella." That you know, they they don't they don't know the Lord, but they're pretty good. What does that mean? There's none good save one, and that's God. You see, he was a secular man. Now stop and think about this. God says to him, "You better be careful when you deal with men like Esau. You're going to deal with them, but you better keep it in mind that you are not the same as them." I'll tell you what I think this is the first take heed about. It's telling us to take heed in the matter of secular relationships. I want you to notice a few simple thoughts with me and I'll be done tonight. Notice in verses 1 through 3, we have a word of common sense that's given. Well, let's go to verse number 2. The Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward. Now remember what the context is here. They've been, uh, they've been walking around this mountain because they didn't know what to do with this mountain. They didn't know if they should go over it, go under it, go around it, or go through it. They didn't know if they should avoid the Edomites or if they should embrace them as brethren. And here's what God tells them. He says, you have walked this and talked this problem long enough. You've avoided it the best you can. You might as well go through their borders because you're going to have to face them one way or another. 
Can I give you just a simple word of common sense tonight? We're going to have to interact with the world around us. God does not call us. I know uh, that much to the amusement of a lot of people, believe it or not, I am not Amish. Nor am I Mennonite. Yeah, no, I know. Really, I'm a Ford man, to be honest. I, You know, and, and there's a lot of reasons I'm not. If I'm to be a million percent frank with you, the Amish are a cult. Uh, they're, they're not, they're not biblical in their worldview of salvation. Now there's Mennonites that are probably a lot closer, but they're still imbalanced and incorrect in their interpretation of the Bible and their perspective. Now don't get me wrong, I'll eat their butter and cheese. Somebody say amen. I'll sit in their rocking chairs, but that don't mean I'm gonna go to their church. And, uh, you know, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, people joke with me about being honest. Let me tell you one of the reasons that I would never be. Even if they were correct regarding the matter of salvation, Because God didn't call any of us to be isolationists. He called us to be separatists. The Lord Jesus says this explicitly when He's praying for His disciples and for those that would believe through their testimony. That's you and that's me. He said to the Lord, I pray not that you'd take them out of the world, but I pray that you'd keep them from the world. Let me just go ahead and tell you, you're going to have to interact with this world around us. And you better learn how to do it biblically and spiritually, and in a healthy way. Because if you don't, you do so at your very own peril. Did you know that the Amish have a practice when their young people turn 18 years old? They uh, send them out from their community, and they are given a free pass to live any way that they want for a number of weeks. And the idea is they're going to go out, they're going to sample all that the world has to offer, and then find out whether or not they really want to be Amish. Can I tell you, there's two problems with that. One, that's not what ought to gauge our biblical worldview. We shouldn't be saying, I want to see if I enjoy sin before I decide if it's bad for me or not. We should be saying the Bible makes it clear that sin's wrong and it's destructive in my life and I shouldn't partake in it. In other words, we shouldn't play cavalierly with the matter of sin. Can I tell you the second reason it's a bad idea? Because the flesh enjoys sin. You don't need a bachelor's degree to find out if sin is fun for a season. Your Bible will tell you there's pleasure in sin for a season. But at the end, it biteth like the adder. And so they send these young people out. But these young people have a completely warped worldview. And they go out into the world and they interact with the world because they are not grounded in the Word of God. They do not have the resources to deal with the things that they interact with. I would say this, we might as well go ahead and come to terms with the fact that one way or another, we are going to have to deal with secular people. There's going to be times in your life you're going to have to interact with people that they don't know your God and they don't care about your God. And you better recognize the wise way to interact with them. We see in verses 2 and 3 a word of common sense, but look at verse number 4, we find a word of caution. He says, and command thou the people, saying, ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau. We can't avoid them. We're going to have to interact with them, which dwell in Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. So we see a word of common sense in verses 2 and 3. Verse number 4, you know what we find is a word of caution. In this word of caution, we see, first off, he mentions about the disdain that they would encounter. He says, they shall be afraid of you. Now, there's two reasons that God commands Moses to give them this word of caution. 
One is because some of them were afraid that the Edomites would slay them. And he reminds them that they are afraid of you. You don't need to fear them. They are afraid of you. There's another reason he warns them about this. Because they're getting ready to go and interact with these people. And they need to be reminded that though they may share a common lineage uh, several generations back, they are not the same as the descendants of Jacob. They're getting ready to interact with a group of people that do not love them, that are not kind to them, that have no affinity for them. Can I remind you as we deal with a broken, lost world, we're going to be dealing with people that do not understand us and do not appreciate us. This is part of being wise as serpents, serpents but harmless as doves. You need to have your eyes open to the fact that the world is not your friend. I mean, I think Brother Larry was talking about it the other day, but one of the things we experience is, as a church very often when you have businesses come and do work for you. And we hear both sides of this thing. Man, I hear people talk all the time about how, oh, waiters and waitresses don't like to work on Sundays because church people are bad tippers. Yeah, I know that. I try to tip uh, like I was tipping to the Lord. And you ought to do the very same thing. And we shouldn't leave a bad testimony. But can I give you the flip side of that thing? Most businesses won't lift a finger for church people because they know that probably they're still going to get paid either way because the church isn't going to risk their testimony by stiffing them a bill even if they do shoddy work. Oftentimes you get shuffled to the end of the line. Oftentimes you get the worst of materials. Oftentimes you get the least of effort. Oftentimes you get the lowest of skill applied to it. Not every business is that way, thank the Lord. But a lot of them are that way. You know why? Because we may think it's a proud, glorious thing to be a member of the body of Christ. I hope this place is precious to you. I hope if you was working on something here, you'd do it a hundred times better than you'd do it at your own house. But can I tell you something? A lost and dying world, they ain't impressed by the fact that we're the church. They don't care nothing about it. You're going to go at times and sit down. I say this to our young people in particular. You're going to go down, you're going to go at times and sit down in front of a boss and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I, you know, I'd love to work for you on Wednesday nights, but that's when I go to church and, 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 and I wish I could work for you on Sundays. I need the money, I need the hours, but that's the Lord's day and I'm sorry I'm not going to do it. Hopefully they'll be sweet and kind and accommodating, but can I let you in on something? They don't care about your church going religion. You just need to recognize that. If you're trusting them to be sympathetic, you're being naive. They're secular people. They don't care about it. And so we see that there's a word of caution of the disdain they would encounter. And then following that, he gives them a word of caution of the discernment that they should exhibit. He says this, Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Can I tell you, the world is not going to prop you up and help you be a Christian because the world doesn't care that you're a Christian in the first place. You're going to have to be circumspect and have discernment in your own life. You're going to have to guard your testimony. You're going to have to guard your commitment to the Lord. The world is not going to help you. It's not going to accommodate you. And it's not going to applaud you for being a child of God. We need to have our eyes open to this truth and recognize that if we go out and try to live a life like the world around us lives, we're going to live just as sinfully and secularly as they do. Go ahead and just come to terms with the fact that you're going to be different from the world around you. That's what God called you to be. That's what God called me to be. Understand that the world we live in will at times try to take our convictions and wield them against us as a club. They'll try to use it to sabotage us, to weaken us, to cause us to be at a disadvantage. As a child of God, you and I are never at a disadvantage because God is our God. He is our portion and He is our helper. But go ahead and just come to terms with the fact 
that as you live in this world, you need to have it drilled into your mind. You are not of the world, though you are in the world. You are to be different than the world around you. And don't wait on and expect the world to help you be a good Christian because they could care less. I see a word of caution here, but then I see a word of counsel. Look at verse number five. He says this in light of this fact. They don't know you. They don't care about you. They don't love you. You have to watch out for your own testimony. And because of that, he says, meddle not with them. For I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbread, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. We see not only a word of caution, but we see a word of counsel here. And he, he talks about, he counsels us regarding our involvement with them. I like the word that the Holy Ghost uses here, to meddle with them. When you're meddling with something, you're into something that ain't your business in the first place. You know, the Bible talks about in the New Testament how we are forbidden as believers from being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We often apply that to the matter of marriage and appropriately so. I think that's fine. But I would say that there is a, a an extension of this beyond that. It's always a perilous thing when we make common cause and invest our lives with, intertwine our lives with, yoke up with people that don't value the same things that we value. Listen, you go into business with somebody that don't care about the Word of God, they're either going to use, they're going to view your Christianity as a weakness and wield it against you, or they're going to despise you because you're not willing to go to the unethical lengths that they are to grow a business. Uh, you enter into a business contract with, with somebody where you're going to purchase something or you're going to sell something. I, of course, I don't mind. Listen, I'm not talking about buying and selling cars. I'm not talking about going down to Walmart. I'm saying you enter into a mutually dependent uh, contractual relationship in, uh, in business nature. Uh, they're going to do everything they can to try to use your Christianity as an advantage for themselves to better themselves. There's danger in intertwining our lives with people that don't know the God that our life is to be all about. So he cautions about our involvement with them. I would take this a little step further in your life and mine. If we make common cause with the world, then understand sooner or later a cause will come along that is not common with us in the first place. And then we'll have a choice that we're going to have to make. Uh, let me tell you something. I, I'm not... Hmm. This whole common cause philosophy is what has sent our country down the tube. Instead of holding a line about what's right, we'd ignore what we know is wrong to try to get the tent bigger and get somebody on the side of our cause, only to find that the causes change so quickly that we may be unified today and find ourselves divided tomorrow. And in our life, we need to make sure that we are aligning ourselves with Bible Christianity, when we find ourselves interacting with the secular world, and of course we're going to do that, we need to be circumspect in recognizing we can't walk with the world and live with the world and live like the world and not expect to have the world's problems. He says, meddle not with them. He talks about our involvement with them. And here's why, because of our inheritance among them. He says, here's why I don't want you to meddle with them. And he's probably talking about engaging with them on a military footing. He's saying don't fight on their battlefield. Don't fight their wars. For this reason, he says, for I will not give you their land. No, not so much as a footbread. Because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. He says, you can go and try to fight for what they have, but I'm not going to bless and honor it because it's not what I want for you in the first place. 
Can I tell you, the problem with us pursuing the world's goals and ambitions is we put ourselves in direct opposition to God's working in our life. We're asking God to bless something that He don't want for us. And He's not going to bless us in spite of what is bad for us that we are pursuing. He says, you can try to fight for it, you can try to claw for it, you can try to angle for it, but I'm not going to give it to you because it's not what I have for you. It's not what belongs to you in the first place. I would say that one of the things that has provided such listless, powerless, you know, shiftless Christianity in the day that we're living in is we have learned to love the things the world loves. In loving the things that the world loves, we have reevaluated our assessment of what things like success means. And now as we pursue things and call them success that God never called success, we can't achieve those things through biblical principles, so now we have to abandon the Bible and adopt the world's philosophy to achieve those things. You know why that is? It's the world's goals in the first place. Listen, I'm not against... I, I'd rather more people go to church here than less people. That don't mean I ain't got a list. Amen. But I mean, I'm just saying, I'd rather, I'd rather more people go to church here than less people. But the success of a ministry is not measured by the amount of people that sit in a pew. Uh, sometimes the healthier church is the one with the best people. Things like facilities. I think it's a wonderful thing to have beautiful facilities. I think we ought to have the best for the Lord. I'm glad we're doing that. I'm glad y'all are doing that cleanup day on the 26th. I'll be praying for you. I, I'm glad, but, you know, that's not the metric for what... You know who has beautiful facilities? The Vatican. You know who has beautiful facilities? The Mormon Tabernacle. I'm just telling you, facilities is not the metric. But we've taken all these things that are not the measure of success, biblically speaking, and said, that's what success is. And then we've said, you know, when I just follow the Bible and do what God calls me to do, I don't get there. I don't achieve those things. Well, that's because that was never what God desired or what were designed in the first place. But then we say the Bible can't get me there. I've got to throw my Bible away and buy some self-help church growth guru nonsense to try to get me to that place. Or there's something better we could do. We could quit valuing the wrong things in the first place and start valuing the things that God values. He tells them, he says, listen, you better be careful about meddling with them because the things that they want are not what I have for you. And so many of the things that the world advertises flashes across our TV screen that our flesh responds to. Those are not the things that God has for us. So he gives them a word of counsel. He says, don't meddle with them. Look at verse number 6. We find a word of consideration. I thought this was good of the Lord to put this in here. He says, ye shall buy meat of them for money that ye may eat. And ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. Now, as God is permitting the children of Israel to travel through this coast, here's what He does not expect them to do. He doesn't expect them to starve, and He doesn't expect them to go thirsty. And so He recognizes there's only going to be one place to buy water from, only one place to buy food from, and I don't begrudge you for having to go and interact with them in that respect. You know what we find here is a word of consideration. He speaks about the interaction that is permitted. God does not call us to be isolationists, but separatists. And the reason is because we are tasked to take the gospel to that same broken, hurting, secular world. And so, of course, we're going to have to interact with it. Listen, I'd love it if your workplace, your secular job, I'd love it if it was a Christian owner and Christian workplace. They encourage you to go to church. Man, they're proud for you being a witness. 
But chances are, most if not all the people in this room, if you work a public job, you're going to have to work a secular job. You're going to work amongst people who don't care that you know God. They're not mad that you do, but they don't care that you do. And as you interact with them, it's important to note, God does not begrudge that superficial level of interaction. He's not calling us to cloister ourselves away like monks in some tower taking a vow of silence. He expects us to live and to move and to operate in this world. And so he permits certain interactions. But notice not only the interactions permitted, notice the integrity that is commanded. Now this is sort of, you got you might have read over this and not even noticed it, but look what it says. Ye shall buy meat of them for money that ye may eat. And ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. Here's what God says. I don't mind you spending the money I blessed you with, but I don't, I don't want no charity because I can pay my own bills. He says, I don't want you being in debt to those that don't know me and love me. I don't want you going hat in hand and leaning upon their good nature because here's what's going to happen. It's going to compromise your testimony. When we indebt ourselves to those that don't know and love, there's a reason the Bible goes to such great lengths in the Old Testament to prohibit usury and to regulate how lending and borrowing transpires amongst the people of God. Because when we allow ourselves uh, to be indebted to people, and, and listen, I'm not even mainly talking about what we would call generic financial transactions. I don't know who the CEO of the bank is that holds my mortgage, nor do I care. But you better believe if I've got a lost friend and I've been witnessing to him and I've got to go to somebody and I've got to borrow a hundred dollars because I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm up against it and I've got to do something. It's not going to be the one that I've been witnessing to that I'm going to go to. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. The next time I go to open my mouth and witness to him, I'm going to be afraid of offending him because I'm going to feel indebted to him. I'm saying this, that there is an integrity that is demanded. When we have to interact with the secular world, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do it as a child of God. Not allowing ourselves to be put at a disadvantage or in some way allowing outward pressures to guide and govern our life. Because the only thing that should be guiding your life and mine is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's it. And we better make sure that we're paying our bills when we do. He doesn't say you can borrow bread. He says you can buy bread. He doesn't say you can borrow water. He says you can buy water. What would have happened had they come in and borrowed a whole bunch of food and took off and ran and left and never paid their bill? What a horrible testimony that would have been on the God of Israel. In other words, as we interact with the world around us, we're going to have to interact with them. God's not angry about that. It's permitted that we interact with them. But we better make sure that it's it's upon us to go above and beyond and to make sure we're interacting in integrity. Notice one final thing, and I'm done with verse 7. He says, For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. He gives them in this passage a word of common sense. We're going to have to interact with a secular world. A word of caution. 
The world doesn't understand us and they don't value the things that we value. A word of counsel. Because of that, we better be careful about the degree to which we interact with them. He gives a word of consideration. God doesn't begrudge us. We're going to have to buy and sell and transact. But then at the close of this passage, He gives a word of comfort. And He reminds us why it is that as we, as we walk through this world, that we can trust in the Lord and not have to feed at the trough of no ethics and of unwise relationships. Why can we do that? Why do we have that choice and privilege as the child of God? Number one, because of the Lord's power. He says, for the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He says to the Israelites, for 40 years you've been a vagabond people. You've had no land to plant. You've had no crops to reap. But nevertheless, I have blessed your hand. You have grown as a people. You have enlarged as a people. And if I can do that, whenever you're wandering through the wilderness, you better believe I can meet your needs when you settle in the land of Canaan. I would say this, whatever it is in our life that we feel like, preacher, I've got to compromise my testimony. I've got to compromise my integrity. It's the only way I can get ahead. It's the only way I can I can advance. It's the only way I can accomplish this. Can I remind you, God has done more with less in your life over and over and over again. You don't have to compromise your stand and your testimony and your witness. You don't have to compromise compromise your, your testimony for Jesus Christ. You stand on the Word of God. And God can bless you when He wants to bless you. He can favor you when He wants to favor you. We see the Lord's power. Number two, we see the Lord's perception. He says, "For He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. In other words, there's not a moment that we live, there's not a, a, a need or a want that exists there's not a moment of affliction or of suffering that we encounter but what God is aware of. There's never anything you're going to go through in your life that God does not already know about it and know the length and breadth and depth and extent of it. God never puts you in a scenario where He is uninitiated into your experience. He's been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And even now, even now, He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It reminds them, you don't have to compromise your testimony. You're going to have to deal with the secular world, but you don't have to make concessions to them because the Lord knows what you're going through. He knows what you need. He knows what you desire. One final thing, and that's a word of comfort about the Lord's provision. He says these 40 years, the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. He says, just ask yourself, have you, have you, have you lost anything by following God? He says, for 40 years you've walked through this wilderness. And you've not had to compromise your testimony. You've not had to yoke up in, in, in an inappropriate way with those that, that don't love me and value me. And he says, for 40 years you've walked around and you've had nothing but my promise. But not a one of you has died of hunger. Uh, every one of you have had everything that they've needed. Can I tell you, in our lives, we don't have to be beggars to this world's kings. We don't have to be beggars to this world's kings. We don't have to, we don't have to bow our knee to sinfulness. We've got a God in heaven. He pays his bills. He, kept, he takes care of his people. David said, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. The fact is, if we choose to compromise our integrity and our testimony, we've not done it because God's too poor to meet our need. We've done it because our integrity was too poor to stand to the need. 
Don't blame it on God. God has the ability to meet whatever need that you're facing. And if you'll resolve yourself to stand resolute for Him, He'll pay His bills. He'll meet His needs. He'll, he'll, he'll work in your life. Just be reminded that through all of your life, He has met your needs. Why would you feel like you now have to compromise with the world's standards to get your needs met? That's never been how a child of God gets his needs met. I know that's how the world accomplishes things. But that's never been how the child of God has accomplished things in their life. Why would you think now that that is the case? Say, preacher, you don't understand. And and listen, I'm keenly aware of this. I'm in full-time ministry. I don't clock in on a public job. I did for a lot of years. I'd do it again if I had to. And if inflation keeps going up, we might all be doing that. Either that or standing down at Cedar Bluff one of them signs. Amen. I, I'm not above that. I, listen, I know, I know, I've not for, for years now, I've not clocked in on a, on a public job. And some of you, every day, you're faced with choices. Every day, you're having to, to make decisions. And I know that. God doesn't begrudge that you have to make those decisions. God doesn't begrudge you having to interact with that world. In fact, God can bless those interactions to be a light and witness for the gospel. But just recognize the danger of interweaving your life too closely. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that this world hated Jesus 2,000 years ago. It hates Him more today. doesn't love your Savior. doesn't understand your Bible. doesn't value your Christianity. So don't drive your tent stakes too deep. Instead, uh, reach to the heart of God and tether yourself to that anchor that's within the veil. Let that be the thing that guides you in your life. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want you to have an opportunity to Meet the Lord in this altar. I don't know what God may have dealt with you about, but chances are you work in a public world, in a secular world, on a public job. You're probably faced with decisions all the time that you have to make. And you can make the decision right here and now to say, you know, I'm going to make my mind up. I'm bought and paid for by the Lord. And I'm going to belong to Him before anything else in my life. Find a place at this altar and let God have His will and way in your life. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name. Miss Connie's going to play. The altar's open. I invite you to come. God spoke to your heart. I want you to meet Him in this place. God's not mad that we interact with this world. He could have took us out of this world. But He left us in it. But He said, I do pray that they don't become of it. We're going to be in it. And God's not mad about that. But God help us to not be of it. But rather to be of His kingdom. His Word, His Book, His Spirit. Let that be the predominating thing in our life. These are praying. We have all the time we need. God touched your heart. Meet Him in this altar. Let Him have His will and His word.